Friends, let's pray together one more time before we do look to God's word briefly together and consider what our Lord Jesus has accomplished for us. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, our prayer tonight is simple. We pray that as we look to your word and consider what you've revealed there, that we would see your son. We pray that we would rightly see ourselves and our sin. We pray that Christ would be exalted. And we pray that your spirit would come and take that and work in us that as we behold the Lord Jesus, we would be stirred. We would be affected. We pray that we would be grateful, filled with gratitude for what he's done. We pray that we would stand tonight anew in awe of him, our Redeemer and our Savior. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, we are here to commemorate and to celebrate Good Friday. And I do use that word celebrate on purpose. What is it that makes Good Friday good? This gathering, you know, we've, we've got the lights down low. We're going for a little bit of ambiance. We hope that you're enjoying that. It's a little bit harder to see our Bibles and our notes up here. But what is it that makes this day good? It's a sober thing that we're reflecting on. It's a sober thing, a very solemn thing. The greatest sin in the history of the world, the murder of the Son of God. What is it that makes Good Friday good? The answer to that question has everything to do with what Jesus accomplished on a Friday afternoon outside Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. Or maybe to put it more precisely, the answer to that question, why is Good Friday good, has everything to do with what Jesus finished accomplishing on that Friday afternoon 2,000 years ago. And so if you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do uh, tonight, just like on Sunday morning, Open them up to John's Gospel, not the letter of 1 John, which we've been looking at on Sunday, but John's Gospel and chapter 19. We'll be looking briefly together at John 19, 28 through 30. While you're flipping there, just to be clear, this is not a normal like Sunday morning expositional sermon. This is going to be more of a meditation on the work of Christ in our place. And so if you're visiting with us tonight, this is a little bit unusual uh, even the order of service is slightly different. And even what I'm going to do right now is slightly different. But we pray that it will be helpful for us. So now that you've had time to flip, we've also got the verses up on the screen. You can follow along there if you need to. I'm going to read God's word for us. John 19, 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Amen. So the scripture that's alluded to in verse 28 that Jesus fulfilled here in saying that he was thirsty and then sour wine was given to him is Psalm 69 21 that reads this way. They gave me poison for food and for my thirst. They gave me sour wine to drink. It's a 
psalm that has a very messianic kind of feel and tone to it. But I want to draw your attention to something that's far more substantial than just that fulfillment of Psalm 69, 21. In verse 28, you can put your eyes there. You see what the Apostle John wrote. After this, after what? Like after he had suffered, he had been crucified, he had lived his life on earth. It's culminating in this moment. He's being murdered by the Romans outside Jerusalem, bleeding on a cross. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished. And then in verse 30, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished, to telestai in the Greek, which will often say that word. We were hanging out last night practicing music, and in the homes of one of our members, there was this cool like to telestai, it is finished on the wall. That's a banner over the church for a reason. So what's really important for us to see from this text and what I'm hoping to do for us tonight is to point out some very high level things from Scripture. So at the moment of his death, Jesus knew that all was now finished. That's a remarkable statement. Like It's done. And also huge is that his final cry in some of the other Gospels, it just is said that Jesus let out a cry and breathed his last. We're given the detail in John's gospel of what he said. It's finished, and he lays his life down. The question, then, is what exactly had Jesus finished? He knew it was done. He said it was done. What had he finished? That's what I want us to think about together tonight for 20 minutes or so. For our purposes, I want to consider what Jesus had finished, what he had accomplished under four headings or four things that Jesus had done. Number one, at this moment when he knew that it was all finished and he said as much, it's over, he, number one, had fulfilled all righteousness. Jesus had fulfilled all righteousness. So what does that mean? It means that he had fulfilled God's law the perfect law of God and all of its righteous requirements. He had fulfilled every one of them. When God says in the scripture, in the old covenant in particular, do these things, keep the law and live forever. Like he's not bluffing. He meant that. Do these things and you'll live for men to be saved. For men to live forever, the law needed to be fulfilled by a man. It's a requirement. If you're going to live forever, this needs to be done. And Christ did that. He, as a human being, fulfilled the law. Think of these passages. You, I'm going to give you these references so you can write them down. This would be a great exercise for you one time, sometime to go and read these. I'll read them for us tonight. Matthew 5, 17 and 18. This is from the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. That's meaning the entire Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. 
It's not like the new covenant era is ushered in, the Messiah comes, and just the law doesn't matter anymore. No, it will never pass away. It has to be fulfilled. Christ said he came to do that. Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 to 17. This is the baptism of our Lord Jesus when he comes to John the Baptist. It goes this way. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you and you come to me. But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Christ didn't need to be baptized. He'd never sinned. He did it for his people. Then he consented. John consented and baptized him. And when Jesus was baptized, God was pleased. Immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were opened to him and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. My beloved son who would fulfill all righteousness in the place of his people. Hebrews chapter five, verses eight and nine. Although he was a son, he being Jesus, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to those who obey him. Jesus was just like us. The writer of the Hebrews had already said that. He was just like us, except without sin. Truly man. He suffered in his humanity. And he obeyed perfectly in his suffering as a human being. He was made perfect. That is, he achieved perfection in his human life. And so he became the source of eternal salvation for anyone who would obey him. What does that mean? To obey the Lord Jesus most fundamentally is to what? Believe in him. Through him and his perfection, we are saved. Jesus had fulfilled all righteousness. Number two, what had Jesus finished on that Friday afternoon when he said it's over? Number two, Jesus had satisfied God's justice. Jesus had satisfied God's justice. So the Lord is a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands of generations, but who will by no means clear the guilty. God is just. He is upright. He punishes evil. He is wrathful against sin. His justice that's revealed so powerfully in his law requires that sin be paid for. So just like when he says in the law, do these things and live, he's not bluffing. Well, when he says violate these things and die, he's not bluffing either. So something had to be done because I'm in a room right now full of lawbreakers. We've read already of the nation of Israel and they were lawbreakers. So what happened? Jesus, the suffering servant of God, was counted with the sin of God's people. He took our sin and our guilt and our lawbreaking on himself and then he took our punishment 
that we deserve for that lawbreaking and that sin. He was wounded for our transgressions and was crushed for our iniquities and the iniquity of us all was laid on him by God the Father. He who knew no sin was made to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He became sin who knew no sin so that we might be declared righteous with the very righteousness of God. Jesus bore the wrath of God against our sin. He died under the law in our place. That break this law and you'll die, he did that for you. You don't owe a death anymore. It's been done. God the just is satisfied to look on Christ and pardon us. Number three, what else had Jesus accomplished on that Friday afternoon 2,000 years ago? Number three, he had fulfilled the entire Old Testament. He had fulfilled the entire Old Testament. So is the Old Testament a Christian book? You better believe it is. Jesus fulfilled the law. We've already talked about that. But what is that? He had fulfilled the Mosaic covenant, the covenant that God made with his people through Moses, instituted in Exodus 19 and 20. Jesus is, we're told, in the book of Hebrews, that he is the greater Moses. He is the prophet who would be raised up like Moses, who is to come, Deuteronomy 18. He is the greater Aaron. Meaning he's the greater, the great high priest after the order of Melchizedek, a high priest forever. He is the fulfillment of the Levitical priesthood. Jesus is the greater David, the king who would come. He's the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant that's given in 2 Samuel 7. God says to David, I'm going to give you a son who, sit, who will sit on the throne, my throne of righteousness forever. It's Christ. Jesus is the greater temple. So the temple that was built, I mean, we, we thought about the tabernacle in thinking about the Day of Atonement and the Holy of Holies and all these things. It was a tent that was made literally out in the wilderness. But then as God gave people the promised land, they built a house for him. Solomon did. The tabernacle and the temple was where God's presence was on earth. Most pointedly in the Holy of Holies is where God's presence was on earth. Well, when Jesus came, he fulfilled the temple. The word, God the Son, took on flesh and dwelt among us. And then at his ascension, we know that the church has now become the temple of God. We are indwelt by the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God dwells in the saints now. So we went from tabernacle to temple to Christ to the church, but Christ fulfilled the temple. What's more, while we're still thinking about the temple, there was this great curtain that hung that separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple. This place where God was, was separated from the people. And on that curtain were cherubim, mighty warrior angels, there's a little children's book that we read in our house a lot. It's called The Garden, the Curtain, and the Cross. It does a great job of depicting this, of how 
God put angels outside the Garden of Eden when he sent Adam and Eve out as a big keep out sign. You can't dwell with me anymore because of your sin. Those warrior angels were on that curtain as well. You can't dwell here. You'll die here because I'm holy and you're sinful. Because of your sin, you can't live with me. Well, that very curtain, Mark chapter 15, verses 37 and 38, when Jesus died, when Jesus had, these are the words of Mark, had uttered a loud cry and breathed his last, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. That temple, that curtain, excuse me, that separated man from God and God from man was ripped in half when Christ died. He had made a way back to God. It was ripped from top to bottom, meaning God had done this, not man. We read from Isaiah 52, 53 of the suffering servant of the Lord. Jesus is him. That servant who would come, Jesus is the fulfillment of the suffering servant. We read of the Passover. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Passover. He is the Passover lamb. The Passover existed and happened because Christ was coming. The day of atonement that we heard about from Leviticus 16. Holy smokes, what a text that is. Blood everywhere. A sin offering and a guilt offering. And then there's the scapegoat on whom the sins of the people are put and it's sent out into the wilderness. Jesus is the fulfillment of the day of atonement. This offering for sin and then the scapegoat who takes the sin of God's people away. The day of atonement was about Christ always. Jesus fulfilled the entire sacrificial system. So when you read in Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy about all of these sacrifices and how they needed to be done and for what, Jesus would come and fulfill that entire thing. The once and for all sacrifice that would for all time atone for the sins of God's people. The entire Old Testament is about Jesus Christ. It points to him. He fulfilled all of it when he says it's over. It's done. Everything that God had said would happen is finding its answer in me. That's why Paul can write in 2 Corinthians 1.20, for all the promises of God find their yes in him. Him being Jesus. That is why Paul says through him we utter our amen to God for his glory. Number four, what else had Jesus finished on that Friday afternoon outside Jerusalem 2,000 years ago? Number four, Jesus had finished the work of redemption. So he had fulfilled all righteousness. He had satisfied God's justice. He had fulfilled the entire Old Testament. And now lastly, he had finished the work of redemption. We know from Scripture that God had determined before the foundations of the world to save a people from the fallen race of humanity. God's covenant of redemption that he made with himself. Like we're going to, we the Trinity are going to do this. God's covenant of redemption was always the plan. Like we'll say that on the regular. There is no plan B. It's always plan A. God made the world and ordained the fall, and then from the fallen human race, saves a people. It's always the plan. 
and specifically in thinking about how that redemption would be accomplished. It was always the plan that God the Son, not the Father, not the Spirit, God the Son would take on flesh and that he would be the mediator, the one true mediator between God and man. That was always the plan. So Jesus is God the Son made flesh. God the Son took on a body and became Jesus of Nazareth a little over 2,000 years ago. He lived on earth for 33 years. He is the Redeemer. Jesus would fulfill the covenant of works that God made with Adam, that Adam failed to keep. Fill the earth, subdue it, cultivate it. You can eat of anything I've given you, but don't eat of that tree. Eat of that and you'll die. Adam broke the covenant. Jesus would fulfill God's covenant of works. He would fulfill all righteousness. Where Adam failed, Christ would succeed. He is the new and better Adam. And in him, God's people would be saved, not by works of their own. In Christ, God's people would be saved by grace through faith. So we are saved by works, just not ours. Works are necessary for salvation. So this this is kind of like being provocative, right? Are works necessary for salvation? Yes, just not yours. Christ's works did everything. Jesus in the high priestly prayer, John chapter 17, he says there in verse four to the father, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. It's quite a task. I've done the work you gave me to do, Father. I've glorified you on earth. It's finished. It's about to be done. That work was redemption. And that work was accomplished by Christ, and it's now over. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 11 through 14. What a wonderful passage. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down because it's done. He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Praise be to his name. So in John 19 and verse 30, when Jesus said it is finished, he meant that. He meant what he said. It's over. It's pretty remarkable as I was even reflecting on it. Because the resurrection hasn't happened yet. And yet he's saying it's done. Well, how, how can that be? This, this is where I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lay my cards out just biblically. And, and you have a Bible like I do. And and can judge for yourself. When he says it's finished, I think in the mind of Christ, the resurrection is a foregone conclusion in that it's going to happen. He'd been predicting it during his earthly ministry. They're going to kill me. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to die. And on the third day, I'll be raised. He knew it would happen. He would be raised by the power of the Spirit of God. He had said so himself. The work 
in terms of the perfect life necessary, the suffering and punishment for sin, the bearing of the wrath of God, that work was over. And he said, it's done. I know I'll be raised. The resurrection amongst a whole host of other things that we'll think about on Sunday was a vindication of the work of Christ. What Jesus did was enough. It was sufficient. It was legit. And so God raised him. He knew that was coming. That's why I think he can say it's done. Jesus knew at this moment, knowing that now all was finished. He knew that his work was done when he came to breathe his last. The duty had been discharged. Righteousness fulfilled. Atonement and propitiation accomplished. Salvation for his people secured. It is finished. And so, because Jesus meant what he said, redemption's over. There is nothing left to be done. It is done. And so you might be sitting there as we're ending our time together tonight, and you're thinking, all right, bro, well, it's Good Friday and everything. Like, what about some takeaways? Give me some handles. Give me something that I can walk out of here with. I hope that what we've already considered is something for you to walk out of here with. But I'll give you three. I'll give you three handles, three takeaways. One, Christ is all. Christ is all. He has done everything. Nothing else is needed. Number two, Jesus has accomplished your salvation. Cling to that. He has accomplished your salvation. Like nothing's in jeopardy. And then thirdly, exhortation, trust him. Trust him. So Christ is all. He has accomplished your salvation. Trust him. That's the takeaway. Come with your heart full even on Sunday morning. Or if your heart's breaking, come then too. And have Christ held out again for you. Because what you need is what I need. So, friends, in our experience, in our living of life in a fallen world, battling against our own corruption, battling against the brokenness of the world and the trials that we face, we are so prone to think that Jesus is not enough. We're so prone to think as we fight against our sin and we struggle, there's no way that Jesus is enough. Surely there's got to be something else. Brother, sister, he is enough. He's all that you need and I need on Good Friday and on any other day. Thanks be to God for Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, may your name be regarded as holy. We give you praise for sending your son. We give you thanks for your great plan of redemption that has always been there, certainly before we were ever here. And Lord Jesus, we thank you very personally for dying for us, for taking our own sin into your body and taking it on yourself on the tree and taking the punishment we deserve. We pray that we would be grateful. We pray that we would be moved and above all things, Father, we pray that we would glorify you by resting and trusting in your son. May we know that we know that we know that he is enough. 
We pray that you would minister to us even now as we sing about the fact that he has paid it all. Not most of it, not some of it, but all of it. We give you praise in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.